Greetings and salutations, and welcome to this episode of Playwright Spotlight. Before we begin, smash that like button, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment down below, and share this channel with a friend. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, be sure to leave a five-star review and subscribe to the channel. My guest today is author of more than 40 published plays with over 2,000 productions worldwide, including such titles as 4AM, Harry's Hotter at Twilight, Thank You for Flushing My Head in the Toilet, Dear Chuck, and The Locker Next to Mine. He co-founded publisher Youth Plays and is chair emeritus for the Alliance of Los Angeles Playwrights. He created the content for Playwriting101.com and taught playwriting through Screenwriters University for more than a decade. He has served as visiting associate professor in the MFA Playwriting and Children's Lit programs at Hollins University as United States Cultural Envoy to Barbados and has been a guest speaker at dozens of schools and festivals ranging from ITF and EDTA annual conference to Singapore's Asian Festival of Children's Content. He holds a BA in Dramatic Writing and Literature from Harvard University and an MFA in Playwriting at UCLA. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jonathan Dorf. Finally. <laughs> Finally, we got through that. What a mouthful. Um, in so many places, I want to go with that. And I'm going to start with uh, youth plays because it's come up a zillion times. I have yet to have somebody who's a publisher. Uh, as many times I'd like to get like, you know, um, Concord or Dramatist. It doesn't matter. Either way, from a publisher's point of view, what, what's the criteria? Obviously, youth plays is that's the obvious point, but like, what, what are you looking for when it comes to publishing quality work or, you know, to get through the, 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 the gates, if you will. Yeah. So I think for, for youth plays, you know, we occupy a really specific niche in the market. We're kind of in that educational theater market, uh, which is bigger than people think. And, you know, because every school uh, puts on plays and then there are youth theaters and there are professional theaters for young audiences. And our particular focus is on plays that have at least some age appropriate roles for young performers. So what we don't want, for example, is, you know, you have your cast of 15 year olds and they all have to play 40 year olds because the reality is that they're not going out and, and working in those roles. And so we want them to be able to play uh, at least substantially people who are kind of like themselves. Um, so, so for us, that's the first thing we look for is, does this play meet our mission? Uh, occasionally, we will take something that we think is just really important theatrically that maybe doesn't have those roles. Um, from there, and I think every publisher has their own taste, you know, so there are plays... Um, so I have a bunch of plays at Playscripts, or now Playscripts is part of the larger Broadway licensing umbrella. And, and for example, they might have a very particular taste. So they have a lot of like really crazy comedies. That might be their thing. Um, for us, uh, and it's not to say that they don't have some of these too, but we tend to like pieces that are maybe a little bit thoughtful. They have to be theatrical. They have to be well-written. Um, but I want something that gets me excited. Sometimes we don't know what that is until we see it, you know, which is the tricky thing because writers are always looking, they like want to know like what's the code. And and sometimes we don't know until the, you know, the proverbial bathroom door opens that you got the right code. Um, you know, so for example, one of the, the plays that we published last year and it actually won the American Alliance for Theater and Education Distinguished Play Award is this uh, play called The Post Office by Melissa Leilani Larson. And it's an adaptation of an Indian play by Tagore. Um, and it's a gorgeous play about this young girl who has this mysterious illness, and she's kind of a shut-in, and, and in this adaptation, 
Um, it's sort of set timelessly, and she's living in kind of this dystopian world, and she dreams of being able to deliver the mail and travel the world for the post office. And, and just the writing is so powerful that that's the kind of play we look at, and we're like, this is a play we want because it's smart, it's theatrical, it's got great roles for young people. And, uh, you know, that was a play that we jumped on and, uh, you know, it ended up, you know, winning an award. And, and you know, some of us plays don't win awards. That's not the, you know, you don't know. Um, but we thought this is a really meaty show. And I, I think that meaty maybe is a good word for plays that we want. Um, you know, there are other people who do lightweight and silly. And every once in a while we do too. But uh, that's maybe not what we're, we're running toward. I want to expand on this some more, but you said something, and I'm curious if there's an answer to it. What makes powerful writing? Oh, gosh, I wish we knew. <laughs> sure. Um, again, it's like sometimes you know when you see it. I mean, for me, as somebody who's taught playwriting for a really long time, um, I think it is fully realized characters who have some depth to them. I think it is full of really great dialogue. And one of the places where I think playwrights tend to fall down is maybe too much exposition. And so I want a playwright who really understands how to weave exposition into the play and to sort of make the world of the play. We'll talk about the world of the play. You know, it's not just what the characters are doing on stage, but when they go off stage, like what are they going off to? And I want a play that has a fully realized world, even if we never see parts of it. What makes an in-depth character? I think a character who has maybe more than one dimension, you know, so we, we know what they want, you know, often in plays, like that's not the hard part. We know what we'll say is driving them on a plot level, but it's also about who else are they besides that one thing? How do you, how does that translate on the page? How do you express that? You know, Leon Katz, who was uh, one of my mentors uh, at UCLA, and, and Leon, uh, who was a sort of an icon and, and, and a mentor to so many of us. Um, I think he was actually coach of dramaturgy at Yale back in the day. But, but Leon used to talk about something called the tension of opposites. And so giving a character multiple sort of tugs on, on their needs um, you know, so for example, a uh, play that I wrote a, a while back, actually, that I wrote under Leon's guidance is a play that's, that's not for young people. My career kind of took a turn where that's most of what I do now. But uh, I wrote this play called Shining Sea. And there was this, this character, he was probably about 19, uh, whose, whose nickname was Pac, uh, short for Pacific, because he was obsessed with getting to the Pacific Ocean. That's, that's kind of like all he wanted. But at the same time, he kept these pet rats. And he, uh, he actually named them after uh, himself and sort of his, his traveling partner. So there would be like Pac Jr. and Candy Jr. and Violet Jr. And, and so while he had this sort of overriding desire to make it to the Pacific and, and see the ocean, he also had these rats in his care and he was sort of fanatically devoted to him. And sometimes what becomes interesting then in the play is when those two competing needs clash. And so you have characters 
who have more than one thing going on. I think a lot of times we sort of write these, um, you know, whether we call them one-dimensional or, or maybe almost monosyllabic um, characters. And, and it's not that they can't be strong characters, but I think that a character can be really more if you give them, you know, two or three things, all of which are tugging them in different directions. So would you, would you call that, is that equivalent to multiple conflicts? Rather than just one thing that's preventing you, it's like there's a couple different things you have to adhere to before you can... Yeah, in a sense. I mean, I think that, that when Leon talked about this idea of the tension of opposites, I thought that was a really great way to talk about it. So you have these um, opposing forces inside you, and they create dramatic tension within that character. So that character has sort of internal conflict in addition to whatever external conflicts may result. Can you, and we, this is something, it, it, it's kind of surface level because we've gotten into it a zillion times in, in past episodes. Um, can you delve in and expand on, from, from your point of view, internal and external conflict? So tricky. <laughs> <laughs> In every episode, in every episode, when you're not, if you're not in the moment of writing, it's hard to really to define those things. And I, and I always put playwrights in the spot when I, when I do this. It never fails. There's yeah. always that one question. Like I'm not involved right now. I'm not ingrained, so I, it's hard to answer. Where are so. you? Um, well, when I think of an external conflict, I think of um, you know some someone else. I think of you know so and so is going to take the house, and I can't let them take the house. On the other hand, you may have a character who is, we'll say, struggling with his sexuality and isn't sure, um, you know, I, I'm looking around, we'll say, at, at my parents, not my personal parents. My okay. parents are great. But, um, but, but, you know, maybe that character is looking at their parents and they, they don't know whether to come out uh, because they're, you know, they're thinking they might make things worse for themselves. And in the meantime, there's this external conflict going on, you know, with the house and other people. But in the meantime, they know they're gay. And, you know, but they don't know whether it's something they should keep quiet about or so. So that would be an internal conflict, right? Because it's sort of stuck within the, that character. At the same time, of course, the challenge is always how do we make the internal conflict at least externally viewable enough so that an audience can grasp right. it. You know, the, the house thing is is obvious, and that maybe functions more at a plot level, whereas the internal conflicts may often be maybe closer to subplots or more on a character level. Okay. Going back to youth place, is there is there content that you that you don't accept or or that you avoid, or are you pretty much open to everything? So, um, you know, and of course we have, like everybody else, we have a submissions page. And at this point, we take query letters uh, from playwrights that we don't already work with, except for BIPOC playwrights. BIPOC playwrights who are um, over the age of 19 can just send an unsolicited script because we uh, recognize that in the past there have been barriers to access and we want to break those down um, and, and get those voices into the mix. But I would say that, that, you know, obviously we would tell any playwright who's thinking of submitting to us, go on our website, start looking at what we do publish. And, and you know, we have excerpts. You can read probably 75, 80% of the plays. So, so read a whole bunch of our plays and see what we, you know, what we dig. Um, you know, the stuff that we're not going to take 
I don't want to read a play about a middle-aged couple getting divorced, you know, where they're all adult characters dealing with adult problems. And sometimes we'll even read a play which, in theory, has younger characters in it. However, the play itself is really more from the point of view of the adults, or it's about the adults in the play. And so I would say to any playwright who's thinking of submitting to us, look at your play, who does it center? You know, where's that that point of view coming from? And if it's about young people, uh, or at least has some really significant roles for young people, it doesn't have to be all young people. I've often tried to write plays where all the characters are teenagers. That was interesting, for example, in Locker Next to Mine, uh, which is a play about a teen suicide. I mean, it's about some other things, but but largely about that. And I do have some adult characters, but they actually are meant to wear masks. And I wanted to create a sense that there was a barrier uh, between those characters and the young people in the play, which was kind of part of the problem, that there was a, a sort of breakdown in communication and that those particular characters, the adult characters were not necessarily listening uh, and, and so I made them kind of types. Okay. You mentioned that as far as submissions go, that you'll take BIPOC playwrights that are over 19. Why the age? So, great question. We actually have a competition for playwrights 19 and under. And so we prefer that plays from young playwrights who tend to have a little less experience, just to be realistic, um, because I've read, not only do I read plays for our contest, but I've also adjudicated playwriting at Florida Thespians. And, and so I've read hundreds and hundreds of plays by young playwrights. And can you find a play by a young playwright that is absolutely fantastic? And the answer is yes. Agree. Um, so, for example, the Blank Theater. A little shout out to their young playwrights 100%. competition. And and so back when I was sort of way back in the day, I was a teacher at the Haverford School, and I had a couple students win the Blank multiple years in a row, and I got to know them. And so several of the plays that we publish um, are actually plays that won at the Blank. Um, one of my favorites is a play by Dylan Schifrin who grew up in the L.A. area, and then he went off to Yale, which is a Harvard person I had a hard time forgiving him for. But <laughs> I worked through it after some years. And, uh, you know, Dylan is an incredibly talented writer, and he wrote this play called The Exceptional Childhood Center. And I think he wrote it maybe when he was about 16. And this play, it's it's set in this hyper-competitive preschool where this little boy has got in, but he's got to survive the trial day. It's absolutely hilarious. And it's as good as plays that you would see from adult playwrights. But, but by and large, I think that most young playwrights need some seasoning. And so our idea is if they come through the contest, we'll evaluate if we think it's good enough to win. Or even sometimes a play that, that didn't, we'll say, win, uh, we may still want to publish if we think it's super great. And then we get a chance to work with them dramaturgically and, and spend some time. We're actually uh, dramaturging the current um, winner, you know, sort of last year's winner. And uh, so we think that that is a more suitable channel. 
And, uh, you know, because when I was a young player, I, like I thought everything was ready. And then I realized after submitting it and, and then, you know, you see a production and, and you're like, wow, what was I thinking? Sure. And so we want to build in that cushion for people. Sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Dylan is a alumnus of Harvard Westlake. He is. Yeah. I'm a, I, uh, I, I just went back. As a matter of fact, I just wrapped up their, their Young Playwrights Festival again. I was a guest director there and I'm like, oh, this sounds so familiar. So yes, I, I actually did see a production of that and being in, involved with Harvard Westlake, I mean, they, they do put out some quality, quality pr- uh, productions and, and, and writers. All that said, um, what do you find a lot of, when you get submissions, what are the, what are the things that you think that a lot of writers need to work on? You get something that comes across and I hate using the word mistakes and I don't know what to substitute that with, but coming from a publishing aspect, what, like you should know better than to, to have submitted this, et cetera, et cetera. If that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's funny because especially due to my work in Florida with the young playwrights there, I developed a whole workshop based on things you shouldn't do. And so I have this long list called the greatest hits of misses. And that is uh, sort of, I mean, that would be like a 60 some item list probably of things that people do. Can you give me the top five or 10 maybe? So, so I would say there are some differences between the mistakes that young writers tend to make and sure. the mistakes that older writers make. So, for example, with young writers, one of the things we see a lot of is a sort of omnipotent force, um, which kind of puppet masters the play. And so you have these characters who are fighting against something that is basically unfightable. And, and so any way you slice it, your characters are going to lose and your, your play is not really going to work. Um, what I find is a problem for a lot of people is something that I mentioned a little bit earlier, or at least I think I mentioned it in, in, in one form, is handling exposition. You have a lot of writers who, uh, you know, Jose Rivera talked about exposition as an IV drip. He said just enough to keep the body alive. And more writers need to be in firmer control of their exposition. They tend to sort of hammer us Uh, over the head with it and controlling that flow. And whether you think of it as an IV drip or a trail of breadcrumbs or, or whatever your you know, choose your metaphor. It's so important that we not get too much information too soon, because when you, you overload us with information, it basically turns the audience into furniture. We, we don't have to pay attention anymore. We've gotten it all. And, and so really pacing that play and just giving us a little bit more and kind of leading us, I think is, is super, super important among adult writers in particular, especially because people do not understand writing for young people. Often they think they do, but they don't. And young people and, and whether we're talking about teenagers or children are really smart and they're discerning. And so anything that sort of talks down to them, uh, for us, we're really um, against any kind of heavy-handed moralizing. I, I prefer plays that ask questions rather than try to give us answers. Uh, for example, I have a play that's that's with PlayScript slash Broadway licensing called Declaration, which I think is probably one of the best things that I've written. And it's a play about school shootings, which is a super difficult topic. 
to address. And I knew that that when I was writing it, that I was going to have to tread very carefully because if you come in too heavy handed, you immediately have half of your audience shuts down. Right. And, and we want to be able to have a conversation about this. And, and so I think that by being more open ended and allowing the audience to see things and then draw their own conclusions. And, and, you know, obviously I think that school shootings are terrible and I would hope that everybody thinks that school shootings are terrible. But if I come in and you say, this is a play about how school shootings are terrible. There's a group of people who are like, duh, why, you know, we don't want to watch this. Or if I say that guns are bad, uh, because I want this to be a play that can be done, for example, in the South uh, or places where they may have a very different point of view about guns than we may hear in relatively liberal LA. And I grew up on the East Coast in, in you know, relatively liberal Philadelphia. And, and you know, I've been around liberals all my life, and I am one, and, and I'm proud of that. Um, so, so how can we have plays that are intelligent in not trying to just give us all that? And, and so a lot of times there are those plays that really do kind of talk down or they want to teach a lesson and, and I don't think that's what audiences really need. They need to, to be given some things to think about so that they can then discuss them. And, and we can talk to each other. And, and I feel like that's what a play should do. It should start a conversation rather than try to put a period at the end of it and, and make itself the final word. Leaving it open-ended is not the same as not having a resolution, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, correct. I mean, and, and you can have... You know, for example, in the one-act version of Rumors of Polar Bears, which is a play of mine about a group of teens surviving the aftermath of a climate event, what actually happens next at the end of that one-act version is kind of open-ended on a plot level. Um, but I think that, that that is not the same as the still making a choice. You know, as a, as a playwright, you are you're making a choice that rather than write a period, we're going to write dot, dot, dot. And, and that is, I think that's deliberate. What are the three other things that out of those five that we were just talking about <laughs> to go, to go back on those, um, you know, for, Oh gosh, there's so many. <laughs> it's like, the and pop- you can, you don't have to give me the top. You can give me the three, right, the three right. more that come to mind by all means. Yeah, so I think that, uh, you know, one of them, depending on the play, um, might be um, understanding that when you write a play that all the characters uh, have weapons. And, um, you know, Expand a weapon, so it doesn't necessarily mean a literal right, weapon, sure. but, but I mean, though sometimes it is a literal weapon, but, uh, you know, some character may have cunning or may, they know, may know something about some other character. So things that they can use. So, so really what you're trying to do is if, if it is clear at one point um, that the play is unbalanced, that one character has all the power, right, all the weapons, then we know the ending. And so as an audience, we're way ahead of the play. And so the question as a playwright is how can you keep that outcome in doubt? And that's by making sure that all of the characters are equally armed. Is that, is that, does the audience know that or is that in the playwright's mind that the playwright knows this, but they don't have to reveal that to the audience? Does that make it, it makes sense? So or, or should the audience know those things as well? At some point, it is going to have to get into the play sure. um, because it's like if a character has a choice, 
you know, and let's say they've got, you know, they've got to do, so let's say the, you know, characters are being held hostage by this guy and, and the, the guy who's holding the hostages says, I've got to go to the bathroom because I mean, I would imagine that, you know, at some point during the hostage situation, like you have to pee or whatever sure. and you're not going to hold it. Maybe if it goes on for a while. So, so the guy goes into the bathroom and you've got, we'll say these four other characters who are now, you know, thinking like he's in the bathroom and, and, you know, for the moment, he's got his pants down and, and you know, their <laughs> nature is taking its course and we could just run the heck out of here. And instead, they, you know, and, and so that might be one of their choices. You know, another choice might be to try to trap him in the bathroom. Um, you know, maybe to, to maybe they think there's a weapon somewhere they're going to ambush him. Um, you know, all and instead, they just decide to do nothing. And so... That isn't a credible choice unless we understand why none of the other ones will work. Even if we don't agree with their reasoning, but we understand that at least for them, this is the conclusion they've come to. You know, a lot of times you'll tell somebody that you need somebody in that scene to speak for the audience, because as an audience, we're going to run through all those options. And if they immediately jump to what seems, for example, not to be a particularly credible option, we're going to have questions and we're going to feel like this, like this play doesn't make sense. It sort of jumped the shark. And so if you've got that character who helps the audience to get in its objections and we understand why now they are doing nothing. Uh, and it might be, for example, that one of them reveals that, um, you know, there was a call and he's got my son or he's got my, you know, like his associate has them. And so now what's happened is a little bit more information has been revealed and we understand that. So, Part of it, again, goes back to parceling out that that information, because I do think that the control of exposition is maybe the single most important thing. Um, another thing that plays do badly, um, if we're looking at sort of, you know, greatest hits of misses, um, and I have a really good name for it, which, of course, has immediately <laughs> fallen out of my head. <laughs> but fails. I won't remember it. So, yes, never fails. Um, but, oh, I and then it came back. Thank you. It always parachuted does. back <laughs> in. Uh, it doesn't always. But um, emotional summarizing. So when we look at dialogue, uh, and, and, and I think that dialogue, you know, obviously plays are, first off, one of the problems is sometimes people rely too much on dialogue and they think that dialogue is everything and they forget the characters can actually do things. And so that is a problem. But emotional summarizing. So often what happens is you have these incredibly overwrought exchanges where some character launches into some monologue or, you know, just some tirade and in the moment, it is hard to believe that a character could be that articulate. So you have these people who suddenly, you know, this, this topic might be incredibly difficult to talk about. And it looks like they have been preparing for two months to give this speech. And so it immediately pulls you out of the play. You know, and it sort of sounds like everybody's in therapy and they have practiced it. And, and so, um, you know, emotional summarizing and therapy talk are, are at least very close cousins to each other. But so allowing characters sometimes to have that space in the moment to be inarticulate, to stumble around um, rather than have the playwright try to deliver everything neatly gift wrapped. Because as soon as I start hearing that or seeing that, I feel like this play is false. What, what is the purpose of a monologue 
And when is it time for one? Personally, I love monologues. I mean, in, in theory, a monologue, when I teach monologues, um, you know, so it, it accomplishes a few different things. First off, it, it obviously is there to advance the story in some way and to advance a character in some way. Um, but at the same time, what I think a monologue can do for us is, that, you know, plays have rhythm. And, and I often, you know, liken writing a play to writing a piece of music. And so when you're writing a, you know, piece of music, you have a certain, you know, it might be going like boom, 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 you know, it's going really, really quickly. And a monologue gives you an opportunity to change that rhythm, right? So that the play, which maybe was moving really fast, suddenly it breathes, it slows down. At the same time, if that play is moving really quickly, um, the exposition is often flying at the audience and the audience may need a moment to catch its breath. It's still getting information, but maybe it's getting it at a little different pace. And so that audience is having a moment to process and to breathe. Um, you know, it also gives a playwright an opportunity to take us somewhere completely different. So, you know, here we are and we're in one place in that monologue, you know, it reminds me of those Calgon commercials, you know, the woman would say like, Calgon, take me away. And she'd be in like this meadow and, you know, birds would be chirping and, and you know, it felt like we were in the Swiss Alps or something. And, um, you know, so it was a way to, without having to change the set, um, though, interestingly, a monologue may be a great way to cover a set change or something happening somewhere else on stage. So you need that, you know, on a practical level, because I think that the most important thing, you know, when I'm teaching playwriting is that plays are written to be produced. And you always have to think about, you know, how is this going to work on stage? And so sometimes there's a practical reason why that monologue may be very effective, but just being able to take us somewhere else without having to build a whole new set, uh, you know, just put a character under a special and wind them up and let them go for a moment. I do think that monologues need to be earned, though. So there has to be that moment where, you know, in the same way that then in a musical you have a song, like you need to have some reason why that moment makes sense, because otherwise you're literally stopping the play dead for no reason. Do you, do you have an example of like the perfect monologue? Is there one that you teach whether it's your own or is there one out there that everybody knows that like this is the that's a that's a great and incredibly difficult question um you know a monologue that I, well it's part of a play that i think is probably the perfect one act play um is a zoo story by edward albee yeah. and so the story of jerry and the dog is a beautiful um it's almost a play unto itself because, you know, and a good monologue has sort of a beginning, a middle, and an end to it. And, and there probably are other structures out there, just as there are other structures for plays. Not every play has that sort of linear beginning, middle, end. But I think that that particular monologue does. And so we go on a journey with that character uh, in the same way. And I'm probably paraphrasing a little bit. But, um, you know, Jerry says sort of toward the beginning of the play, when he's talking about um, going down, you know, he takes the, the subway all the way down, um, you know, to, so that he can walk all the way back up. And he, he says, uh, you know, sometimes it's a, you know, it's something a person has to do. Sometimes they have to go a long distance out of the way in order to come back a short distance correctly. And the play is literally the long distance out of the way. Because if he told, you know, Peter immediately, like if, if the end happened at the beginning, Peter would have run away screaming and said, this is a lunatic. Um, and, and so I think that that, particular monologue 
And that's a particularly long monologue. And, and I think a great monologue could be a minute or 30 seconds. It's really about what does it accomplish and, and how is our understanding of the world maybe a little bit different at the end than it was at the beginning. And I think that's what a monologue does. And, and so it's almost like we have this little exit point for the play where we sort of go, you know, the play is moving like this and then suddenly we go up here. And, and what I think is interesting is when we land almost back at exactly the same point that we left and yet something is a little different. I don't remember who it was. I, it was some teacher I think I had, and you tell me if you agree with this, that a monologue shouldn't be a retelling of something that's already happened. Do you agree with that? Or or it should be some exchange of emotion or insight or... So I would say that generally speaking, I agree with your teacher. And in fact, uh, I would add to that because I think that is a problem. It, it's sort of an exposition issue that playwrights have. Um, so for example... Uh, let's say that there are three of us doing a scene and, and you've come in and I've said, the king is dead. And another character comes in and tells them, the king is dead. Well, the problem is that the audience already has this information. So the audience, now when this third person comes in, the audience can go out to lunch. They can be thinking about like, what are we going to eat after the show or whatever? And so you can't give people the exact same thing again because they've already gotten it you know we forget that what's new to a character isn't new to the audience and and so i think that it is important that if we're getting this monologue we need to either you know look at things from a different angle or it's got to introduce something that we didn't have before you know it's it's sort of like the the improv game yes and mm. that there's got to be something else because otherwise like why do we need to be told something that we already know and the, the 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 you know the monologue that comes to mind right now in this regard and and maybe I'm just inexperienced or I I I have never seen the I don't understand the purpose of it I don't know if that's the right phrase to use but you take the the dry socks monologue from all my sons okay and I'm like all right what what do we what are we getting from that what what does that monologue serve. It's a, you're retelling something that happened in his life, but I'm not quite sure where that, what that gives the audience. It has probably been 20 some years since the last time. I and it's fine because play. again, like again, I'm, it's, it's just something that popped into my mind. I'm curious if you, you know, it's, it's an interesting question though, you know, that, that first off, if you're talking about something that maybe happened before the play began, and I think there is an argument for, why do we need this information? Um, but is it a character moment that somehow informs some decision that's happening in the present? Because I think that anytime you have a monologue that's about something in the past, the question is, what is it doing in the play now? So there has to be some reason where we sort of dip out of that real time and we come back and now the character knows what they need to do because of that thing that they have dug back into. And, and so not remembering this particular monologue, but, but if there is a way that, that a monologue that doesn't seem relevant, at least on the surface level, to the present action, has some way of informing the present, then it's relevant. 
switching gears again and going back to what we've already discussed. As far as your greatest misses, what is that? Is that a list that some people can, that people can find somewhere for reflection rather than trying to, you know, yeah, get so, you to dig it back up from memory. So it is. Um, so it's actually. So I teach a bunch of different workshops. Okay. And and that is part of a workshop that I teach. And there is a um, you know kind of asynchronous. I think that's the word we use for it, where it's basically a recorded workshop that uh, that people can access. Um, for at least at this point. Plug, right plug away. Price. Do it yeah. Do it now. I mean, we'll get to it eventually, but yeah. we'll, we'll quote, include it in show notes. But since it's already in, on in, on topic, where can where can people find that? Yeah. So if they go to my website, uh, jonathandorf.com, under uh, workshops, um, there's a list of workshops, and then people can contact me. And, uh, you know, they're, they're a combination of everything from workshops, which really have you intensely writing, uh, and you can do it basically. I, I guide people and, you know, we will literally pause three minutes while you do the exercise and pop back in. And, and you know, something like this is maybe more of a lecturing workshop. It's really great for teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually part of a workshop called First Do No Harm, right, which is about teachers supporting young playwrights because the last thing that you want to do for a playwright is actually sort of derail them or mess them up. And so... It's how to be supportive in terms of the criticism that you uh, offer, but then also here are the things you are likely to encounter. And this is where the greatest hits of misses comes in. So it's basically sort of a be prepared. Um, this is the sort of play that you will see, and this is how they will screw it up. How do you best support somebody, whether they're a young playwright or, or a beginning playwright or even, you know? What, what's the best piece of advice you can give in that regard as far as support goes? So I think that the best thing is to recognize that um, this may not be the play that you would write. And so when I um, give feedback to someone, uh, I try to be, you know, not say you should do this. I try not to be prescriptive. I try to be more descriptive. And sometimes that would be questions because if we'll say, I ask you a question then you can answer it in a way that suits the play that you are trying to write. So, so my goal when I'm teaching is to figure out what is a play that you're trying to write and how can I help you write the best version of that? It's not about the play that I would write, right? Because any of us writing from the same prompt would write completely different plays. It's just the way our brains work. What is the worst support you could give somebody? I think the worst support would probably be the opposite of that. So when you start saying you should do this, so, so whenever there is a dramaturgical discussion and, and I hear somebody say, you should, you know, change this, you should immediately, nope, 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 nope. And I, I will try if I am, um, you know, running that discussion, uh, you know, moderating, I will shut that down immediately uh, because that becomes about the play that that person would write. And, and, you don't want that. So it's trying to figure out how can I meet the playwright where they are rather than dragging them over to me. And I've seen it happen. Um, I've seen it happen when I was in graduate school that, that without you know naming names, um, one of my classmates had this beautiful play and, and it should have been mostly left alone. In fact, when, when Leon heard it, he's like, this is finished. And um, one of the people who was, uh, you know, in the faculty who was assigned to the project kept pushing this play uh, into the sort of paradigm that they were comfortable with. And 
in doing so, and, and of course she listened because she was a student and that person was the professor, it shredded the play. And it still bothers me, even though this is, you know, over 20 years ago at this point. How did it, how did it shred the play? What, what, where, where was it going? And then how did it derail it? So this was a play, um, that was not maybe quite such a plot driven play. Um, you know, the way I almost thought of it, it, it sort of felt like a, I don't know if a fugue would be the right word, but it was a whole bunch of stuff that kind of swirled around and then eventually settled and, uh, you know, kind of a family drama, but it really was about the language and it, it had a structure that maybe wasn't your standard, um, you know, three act linear structure. And what happened to it is that much more sort of plot was inflicted upon the play. And and not all plays are about their plot. I mean, you think of Waiting for Godot. I mean, there's not a whole lot of plot. It's basically two guys are waiting for this other guy to show up. The other guy doesn't show up. Spoiler for anyone who... (laughs) I know, I have just ruined some people's entire theatrical futures. But, um, you know, so, so if you tried to, you know, sort of impose some sort of outside plot-based structure on Waiting for Godot, which is why it was so revolutionary at the time and why it sort of outraged people because it it, it didn't follow those rules. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have destroyed what we, you know, now recognize as one of the greatest plays in all of theatrical history. And, and so in this case, this play, it needed to be met where it was living and it wasn't, it was dragged into a world where, you know, we need a lot of plot. And, and so therefore, these moments um, that were, you know, sort of beautiful and poetic and ornate, um, Leon, I think it was really Leon Katz who used to talk about this. Like, what makes a play special isn't really the plot. I mean, there are, I don't know, 13 or 26 or 27 or however many standard plots are out there that are all kind of, you know, we've, we've all heard that that story. Um, but, you know, you think of it as like a, um, you know, a skeleton. And nobody has ever said, you know, my, what a beautiful skeleton you have. In the same way that, you know, Christmas tree it's, it's the, um, speaking as a Jew, um, who has never had a Christmas tree, but I have seen Christmas trees everywhere. And uh, it feels like one of those, I see Christmas trees, <laughs> six cents. But, um, you know, so it's the ornaments that you hang on, like the things that are special to you or your family or, or whatever that make that Christmas tree what it is. It's not just the basic tree. And, and so in the same way, what makes that place special, um, which is why I hate when, People have to cut plays for time, and, and there's a whole thing in um, in competition uh, in a certain really large state, the largest of the contiguous 48, I believe. Um, you know, and it's it's wonderful that they have so much theater there, but at the same time, they take these full length plays and they they cut them for time, and so suddenly you have this play that was two hours that suddenly has has been slammed down into 39 minutes, mm-hmm. and you lose something in that you lose all of the beautiful ornamentation that made that place special in the first place. And what you're left with is plot. Did she not recognize what was happening in, in can she not go back and write the play that she wanted or is that 
done and gone, or did she try to hold on to whatever? You know, that's a good question. And I mean, it's hard to talk about somebody who's not here. Yeah. I'm just curious. And it's a conversation that we never really had. Um, I think in the moment, there's a lot of pressure when you, certainly when you have a professor telling you, this is what you need to do. And, And it sort of happened to a, to a certain extent to me, um, you know, and I didn't even really think about that until this moment sure. with another play of mine um, that was really kind of wild. And, and what happened is it was reined in. It became more linear than it was. And now I don't even really look at that play like it's it. It became a play that I was not so interested in. And, you know, part of that sometimes is time you move on. But I was much more enamored of that play when it had these sort of multiple um, timelines and one timeline was running one way and one timeline was running another way. And it was like, it was sort of much more theatrically interesting to me and for purposes of, in fact, the same professor, it, 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 you know, it's funny that I, I'm, it's like having this, this trauma moment that you, you've Sorry, never really that thought out. about until just now. It's like, wow, it's like the exact same thing happened to me, but on a smaller scale. We're changing the name um, to Playwrights Therapy. Yeah, exactly. Um, Beyond Therapy, Chris Durang. There we go. Um, you know, so so I, I don't know, but I think in the moment it was certainly hard for her to resist that pull. And then I think maybe the same thing that, that happened, I'm gonna have to ask her at some point, but, but cause we're still, you know, sort of on and off in touch, at least for, you know, birthdays or whatever. Uh, but, but, just, you know, just say, did you ever go back to that play and, and resurrect the earlier version? I've certainly told her what I believe happened. I've been clear about that. And I think she kind of understood that it happened, but it was hard in that time to do anything about it. I, I get, yeah. And that was the thing that I'm, um, kind of turning over my head right now. It's like, can you, can you recognize, do you recognize that in the moment that it's happening that you're like to where you can kind of correct yourself or not catch yourself and say, Hey, look, I'll abide by this. I'm going to write the play that I want to write. That's over here for all intents and purposes. I'm going to go ahead and do what I'm being told for this. I, I, I don't know. So, so I think that's a, a really interesting um, question. I think the answer is now, now that I'm 52, um, I would probably just tell them thank you and no thank you. Um, okay. This is not the play that I'm interested in writing. Um, you know, and if somebody is, is so much interested in pushing you into a box, I mean, now I guess if I were... You know, if I were writing film and TV, that would be different. Somebody sure. was basically giving me, you know, a, well, not quite obscene amount of money, but like a almost, you know, hopefully after the, the writer's strike, solidarity to WGA happens, they will, you know, have more money and, and, and protections. But but if somebody were giving me a lot of money to go away, maybe. But, but in general, um, especially because, you know, in, in the playwriting world, we own our play. I don't want to have to have two versions of it unless, you know, there might be, you know, some monologues, I, I, the newest sort of longer piece that I have that's done is this piece called The Throne Room. And it's a play that's set either entirely in or about bathrooms. <laughs> and, you know, then the title hits. <laughs> and, you know, there was this one monologue that I absolutely wish I could have gotten away with. And, and um, you know, it's just this monologue, which has been, at this point, it's been cut, but I would, I would resurrect it if a college wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's, it's, I think it was 
super, super fun and hilarious. It's about this, um, you know, young guy who has gone to the bathroom and in the middle of the school day and, um, he is, uh, you know, as teenage boys can be like, he has decided he needs some relief. And so, um, he is, is literally getting that relief when his girlfriend and he's using her picture, like he's using like a bikini picture on his phone that he's looking at. And in the middle of it, she breaks up with him by text. And so now it's this thing of like, what do I do? And and basically, you know, he's like, I'll cry about it later. But right now, I'm not going to let you beat me. I'm going to finish. <laughs> no part intended. And yes, exactly. And and you know, obviously, high schools that would be really hard to get away with. But but for a college audience, that would be a super fun monologue. So something like that, and particularly because that play is vignette style, so it allows itself to. Um, you know, have pieces that, that certain pieces you can kind of pop in and out. Certain pieces you can't because they are, we'll say, the through line or the connective tissue. Uh, but in some of the vignette style plays, there are certain scenes that you can just say, you know, if you need a shorter running time or um, if this is offensive to you or your community in some way, you can drop it out. But But I would probably have this as... If you want the extra pieces because you're at a college, here's the extra piece that you can, you know, have. I wouldn't put it I wouldn't even bother to put it in the school edition because I just think that that's more trouble than it's worth. Going back to that's not the play I'm writing and kind of sticking to your guns and, and whatnot. Is that the, is that the best advice you have? If you're, if you're writing something and somebody's trying to take it in a direction that, that you, that's not the direction you want to go like Leon for yourself is that is that the best way to handle that do you think yeah i mean um you know i wish she had listened in that case i wish she had listened to leon rather than the other professor who was pushing that play in the, in the wrong way but yeah i think that um you know stick to your guns i mean obviously you have to determine is the other person being reasonable um you know is this feedback you know, part of it, is it prescriptive feedback or, you know, sometimes it's somebody gives you feedback that you don't really want to hear, but you realize that this feedback is actually pretty good. Uh, And they're not telling you what to write, but they are saying, um, you know, for example, I was consulting on a project and and, um, without going into too much specifics, it's a screenplay project, but, but, you know, involving uh, some horror elements. And I said, what are the rules of how these creatures die? And that's not pushing anybody into a box. That's simply saying you're not being super clear about that right now. You need to, you know, so that allows the writer to go back and answer that, you know, on their own way. But, but, you know, anytime you have, for example, a discussion, we'll say that I have a play reading and then we have a discussion afterward, people offer up all kinds of, of thoughts. And, um, you know, I remember years ago, I have this play called Milk and Cookies uh, which was all about a milk conspiracy and, and you know, sort of the milk industrial complex. And it was a crazy comedy. It was actually done, a um, guy uh, named Sal Romeo did it at the Sidewalk Studio yeah, Theater, yep. uh, not too far from here. And you It know, does good work, so. Yeah, and, and you know, super fun time. And uh, but, but in one of the earlier readings, long before Sal got to it, but back when I was on the East Coast, and, and some guy... Uh, just says out of the blue, we've just done a reading, and and he says you should you should call it milk stories, 
And I'm thinking, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But as a playwright, you know, the rule is silent author. I just shut up. I write it down. And then I get to tell the story, you know, mm-hmm. later, you know, years later. But but just because somebody gives you feedback doesn't mean that you have to take it. And I think that's another really important thing. Uh, because often, especially for young writers, they're trying to please everybody. And so if you get feedback that... Uh, you know, whether or not you want to hear it, but that basically like some little voice inside your head is saying, yeah, they're kind of right. Um, you know, that's the feedback that you sit with and you, you figure out, all right, what is my version of taking that feedback? Because somebody um, has pointed out an issue and, and I need to address it. Now, hopefully they've done it in a way that, that allows me, you know, they're not trying to tell me what to do. They're simply saying, here's a problem. How you address it is up to you, but, but this is the problem that we perceive. Um, but, but, you know, sometimes you do have to stick to your guns and, and if somebody is really trying to push you in a way that is, is not the way that you want to go and it's not the play that you're trying to write, um, you know, I mean, you don't want to be that person who's like always the jerk, but at the same time, um, you can't please everybody, you know, and, and young writers often want to make everyone happy and you can't, um, you know, you have to make yourself happy first. Like when I'm writing a play, um, that play is first for me, like I have to enjoy it. And then my hope is that if I think it's good or I enjoy it, that other people will also enjoy it. Is that, is it, as far as advice goes, it's just like take what works and then throw away what doesn't in your mind? Or Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, you know, I mean, there are, I mean, every once in a while you get a play and you're just like, this isn't working and I'm just going to put this aside. And, and, you know, you say, well, maybe I'll come back to it. And often you don't. Uh, I have a play like that, that there were a lot of really cool things about it. It was a more ambitious play than I was capable of writing at the time because I did not have the writing chops. Uh, and I tabled it and I always thought I would come back to it. And, and I thought about it maybe like a decade ago. And now I'm just like, yeah, I think we've moved on because, you know, sometimes you're like not the same person you were. Um, you know, I, the plays that I wrote 20 years ago are not the plays that I'm writing now. Um, because I'm not that person. Uh, and I think that's, that's true. Um, you know, but, but always with advice, you know, I'll, if I have a talk back, I write down everything. And I think that is the rule. And it's also a great way as a writer to keep you occupied. I mean, it is useful first off to know what has been said, even if you're not, you know, later on going to take that, but at least have a record. Um, and it keeps you from wanting to jump in and respond because it literally gives you something to do. And I think that that's important because one of the things that's, that's a real problem uh, that you can recognize in certain authors is if they feel the need to talk back to respond to everything, uh, that is a, that's an issue. And, and the thing is that, that when you start responding in a talk back, you know, so somebody says, um, I didn't understand why the dog you know, left on page 25. Well, it really doesn't matter that you explain it to me now. Like, who cares? In the moment, I didn't understand it. Your decision now is to decide whether that's a valid problem. And while you're deciding whether that's a valid problem that you need to address, you also have to consider that not every note that you get is about the moment that it seems to be. So the fact that I didn't understand page 25, the problem may actually be on page 15 because you didn't set up the dilemma with the dog in the first place. And so I think the sort of um, addendum to that, that advice is don't assume that the problem is where it appears to be. Got it. And 
does that come down to when it comes to feedback? Just shut up and listen. Yeah, basically. And and if you have, you know, so normally when I do a talk back, I, I would start with, you know, what moments really resonated with you? Because that sort of gets us off on a positive footing. Yeah. And, and, you know, because talkbacks are stressful. I'm actually much more stressed usually at a talkback than I am at a production of one of my plays. Because at that point, my job is sort of, at least in that moment, my job is done. Um, I may, you know, depending on where that play is, um, you know, I may still be working on it or I may not. So, for example, Claremont High School just did the full-length version of Rumors of Polar Bears. And they have a great program and I wanted to support and it's local. So I'm like, I'm going to go see it. And they had two casts. So I actually went two consecutive days to see each of the different casts. And it was really fun. I'm not working on that play anymore. Like that play is published. It's out there. On the other hand, when Hoover High and Glendale did the throne room, I'm there each show and I'm taking notes uh, because I'm working on that play. It has not been published yet. That was the first production of it. So I'm learning things about that play every time I see it. One of the things I learned actually was this monologue that was about, you know, I don't know, a third of the way through. And I kept thinking, wow, this it feels like it's in the wrong place. And it took me till the end of the production to realize that that monologue actually needs to open the show. Interesting. And, and so I wouldn't have learned that otherwise. How do they get it if it's not published? So, um, you know, I have relationships with a lot of teachers and, and, you know, certainly because I'm in the educational world, there are, you know, there are Facebook groups, There are, uh, you know, other kinds of groups. There are conferences. You know, I'm teaching, you know, playwriting workshops, we'll say, at at some place, and I'm talking to teachers. So I have an email list myself that people, you know, when they go to to my website, they can sign up. Um, And and so that way, I just sent out an e-blast, in fact, saying to people, if you would like the revised edition of The Throne Room, you know, let me know, and I will send you a free perusal copy. And and so in this particular case uh, at Hoover High, this was a teacher with whom I premiered a show probably about a decade ago, uh, a play called Tiny Tim Runs the Marathon. And super fun. We had a great time. And, and so I ran into him at um, a conference uh, back in the fall. And I said, I'm looking for somebody to premiere this show. And he said, send it to me. And so eventually we, you know, we talked back and forth and he premiered the show. And, you know, that's... That's how you do it. Obviously, in the non-educational theater world, it's a lot about sending out, you know, and that's why I think everybody should be a dramatist skilled member. I think everybody should be a dramatist skilled member sure. anyway. But, you know, they have the dramatist skilled resource directory, which has theaters and their submission guidelines and what people are looking for. And I think people should enter contests because if you win a contest, sometimes it comes with a production or it may just give you a certain degree of notoriety, um, you know, and, and sometimes... Even, you know, something that wins and some literary manager may hear this one and they may request a script. Things like that, um, you know, have happened. I had a play that I submitted to Louisville back in the day. In fact, it was a play that was later screwed up in in grad school. And Louisville, um, or no, I guess actually I had submitted it to Playwrights Horizons. I had to remember the story. It's been a minute. And, um, you know, their literary manager read it. He said, not for us, but it's a really good play. And so he put out a blast on this e-list. And so from there, Louisville requested it because they had heard about it. And it turned out not to be right for them. But I mean, most plays, it's so hard to get a new play on because when you look at, you know, a lot of the, especially the larger regional theaters, you know, their season has got, you know, something classic. They've got, 
you know, that like one, maybe that one new play slot, they've got their musical slot and, you know, that new play slot, you better hope that nobody who, you know, is a super big name has a new play that they're already, you know, there's a lot of existing relationships. So it's, it is sometimes, and obviously there are theaters that are exceptions, but it, just because a theater has, you know, four performance slots doesn't mean that you've actually got four slots that you're competing for. You may be competing for one slot. Submission fees, yes or no? No. Um, you know, when I was the co-chair and later chair of the Alliance of Los Angeles Playwrights, our policy was that writers should not have to pay to submit and that we did not list competitions that had fees. Now, I think that I'm not 100% sure, and I know the Guild has a different policy uh, where they will list things. I think that, the, you know, within the case of the Dramatist Guild, my last recollection, at least, you know, whenever the last time I looked into it was, as long as it seemed a not insanely unreasonable fee, uh, you know, based on what the prize was, um, you know, so if it were like a $500 prize and you had a $200 entry fee, they'd be like, hell no. Sure. Um, you know, this, this is obviously you're trying to fundraise off the backs of writers, but, but otherwise, um, you know, they would, they would put it out there. And I think the idea was in the spirit of freedom of information and allowing writers to make their own decisions. Personally, I don't really submit much anymore. Sure. Uh, I have a sort of pathway where I try to get a production or two of a play and then I'm looking for a publisher. And in my market, I know most of the people who publish things and we have relationships and, and, you know, whether I'm sending it, you know, taking it to my own company, but I don't always do that, um, you know, because I think it's important to, you know, it's like an investment portfolio. You want to diversify your portfolio. So there are other companies that I, I talk to and, and have things with, or, or maybe, um, there's a couple companies that I actually three that I can think of that I don't have things with, but we've all talked about it and we would all be interested in having something in mind there. Part of the problem is I need to just increase my output. Sure. Okay. $20 submission fee, two week production and publication. Um, I would want to know more. Okay. So nothing is ever simple because I would want to know, for example, do they want some sort of subsidiary rights where the fact that they produce that play that one time, they want a percentage of all the revenue, you know, going forward? Um, who is the publisher? You know, is it, for example, publishing with Concord? And then I'd be like, well, oh, sure. very cool. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but so I think that everything depends on the fine print. You know, as they say, the devil is in the details. And so it could be great. But it could also be, you know, where you have now like slipped a ball and chain on your foot. Non-exclusive. Non-exclusive rights. So that certainly, um, as a publisher, we're not interested in that. You know, as a right, publisher, sure. we want exclusive worldwide rights. Oh, okay. um, you know, in terms of licensing. Sure. Um, because, you know, we, and I mean, unless we, we entered into, a, let's say we entered into an agreement with an Australian publisher or licensing company, I should say. And, you know, so-and-so, like PlayScripts actually has something like that mm -hmm. where um, they work with, um, you know, and I guess it's true of the whole Broadway licensing imprint, they work with a, a licensing agency in Australia. And so that company is marketing their shows in Australia and it gives that company a much broader catalog right. to draw from. Um, so that might be interesting, but, but in terms of, 
Um, I don't want, it's also very complicated because then you're not sure you see online that there's some news of some production uh, of this show and you have to figure out, well, who licensed it? Right. You know, did okay. somebody license it? Did, you know, is it not licensed? And it, and you don't know who's selling scripts. And then, you know, script gets into somebody's hands and, you know, you have a big problem with people who may buy one copy and then they stage a whole production. And, and at Youth Plays, that has gotten a lot better since we started watermarking mm, our yeah. digital editions. But that used to be a huge problem. So why is it okay to pay a submission fee for screenplay competitions, but not for play competitions? Good question. And and honestly, <laughs> I don't know. It's sort of like these two, and I think there are there are entry fees in a lot of fiction competitions as well. Mm-hmm. It, Certainly on the screenwriting side uh, and the playwriting side, you know, the difference might be that ultimately the playwright is the, the long-term owner of the work. Sure. But but I don't know that that's actually the reason. It may be that, that one side is simply more willing to put up with that than the other side was. But there certainly are, are plenty of playwriting competitions that have submission fees and sometimes they will be waived for say for guild members or or alliance of los angeles playwrights members like we were able to negotiate something um there's also a lot more money in screenwriting so sometimes the prizes you know playwriting you were talking about you know five hundred dollars and a two-week production for which you got no more royalties at you know, some community theater, whereas a screenwriting one might be you got $10,000. And so uh, there is maybe a little bit of a difference in scale. Yes, I would, I would say so. I would, I, for me, I'm not quite sure that, I mean, I think a production is much more, much more worth a submission fee than to, to maybe walk away with some pot of, whatever they earned, you know, you're not like, what'd you get? I want to, I got some money. And yeah, I don't know if that really, if you really get anything out of just winning a contest. Yeah, I think in the playwriting world, you always have to look at it as sort of a marathon that you're running and look at the long-term life of the play and what is going to be most beneficial for that longer life. Now, when you win a contest, you might make a few hundred bucks or, or maybe even a little bit more. The question is, what what else? Sure. You know, if it were, you know, I, so I agree with you that, that if it were purely that contest win, it's like, it's nice. You can put it on your resume, but did it give you a production where you learned about the play and therefore it helped you get that play ready for a larger market and a right. longer life? To me, that would be worth it. On the other hand, you still should be paid. Sure. Okay. All right. Going back to the writing, when, how do you know, or, or when should, when do you sprinkle in the information, the important information while you're writing or even exposition when you're writing? How, how do you do that? So I think it needs to happen almost constantly. And, and that goes back to that idea of that, that IV drip, that it's always drip, drip, dripping in. And so a lot of the time, you know, something that Leon used to talk about um, was context in dialogue, which I think is a very important lesson that, that 
playwrights, whether they're young playwrights or older playwrights, should learn. And so, for example, if you have two characters who know each other really, really well, they're said to have what we would call a high-context relationship. So if I come home from a festival, we'll say I've come home from you know teaching in some other state, and because my parents are still my parents, I call them, and my mom will say something like, how did it go? Because we have had so many conversations before, if, if this were a play, this conversation that begins with, how did it go? Right, there have been hundreds, or in you know, the case of my parents, thousands of other conversations. We have this high context relationship. So in this moment, we both know what it is. Right, okay. Right? And so what happens as this conversation continues is we get just little drips of information. So I might say, you know, best plays I've seen in seven years. That could be my next line. And in saying that, so now we know that that's something to do with, with plays that I either saw or read, right? And, you know, then she might go, uh, you know, and say something like, was the festival as big as last year? Mm-hmm. And now we've got that next little bit of information. So the trick is, you know, and this could go on, you know, forever, but, but so we are, um, every line has just a little bit more. Um, the challenge is if you put too much in one line, you know, and my rule is usually one piece of information per line. Mm. Uh, if you put too much in, then we see you, the playwright, working. Uh, we'll expand that. Uh, what does that, how do you mean? So if you are in the front, I mean, of course, you're working the whole time. Sure. Um, but, but what we want is for it to seem natural and effortless as opposed to the playwright saying, I've got to get this information in. I've got to, you know, put in all this exposition. So suddenly you have these high context characters who should be having these high text, high context conversations, right? Talking to each other as if they're strangers and they're putting in all this information that, that you probably had that conversation several times. Like my parents knew I was going to that festival. They knew I had been reading, you know, 50 student plays before I left. They knew I was making, you know, I probably told them what I was making on it, you know, and what hotel I was staying at. Like, so all of that information they had. And so we're going to talk about that information, that sort of shared pool of information we have very differently because we've already talked about it in different ways, as opposed to if I had to start that conversation with somebody who didn't know, you know, me or, or what I was doing at all, like that would be a low context conversation. The fear that playwrights have is that the audience will not understand the conversation. That is the terror. And so that's why high context characters suddenly have these surprisingly low context conversations. And what instead you have to do is you have to trust that as long as you give them that one more thing and that one more thing, what you're actually getting them to do is to sort of lean in and like wait for what is that that next piece of information I'm putting together this puzzle. Like you're you're literally dropping puzzle pieces onto the board and you want the audience to play along. If you in other, you know, if you instead put together the whole piece of the puzzle, like if you just present them with a completed puzzle, now the audience can just sort of lean back and not pay attention because they already have it all. And, and there's a, a real difference in, in how that dialogue sounds. If you want natural sounding dialogue, like one of my particular pet peeves is, 
characters who are in a two-person conversation and they're constantly saying the other person's name. Mm. Nobody actually does that. You know, like we've, we've said each other's name like, like zero times. <laughs> um, and it's not because, oh my God, I forgot his name. Sure. It's, it's because like, that's not how an actual conversation between people who know each other works. And, and so it also, like in that particular case, it actually, you, it slows down the scene. Right. The scene feels like it's suddenly moving through quicksand. And so like little things like that, I will go through a play and it'll just start crossing out the names of the characters. Because they're doing it for the benefit of the audience, but right. they don't realize that the audience doesn't need that. Well, let me ask you this, John. Uh, <laughs> I see what you did there, James. <laughs> um, shouldn't, all, shouldn't all characters be high context characters, though? In play, I mean, you shouldn't really... I mean, can you, outside of Zoo Story, what play is about strangers that don't know each other? I mean, you should always, shouldn't they, there always be some kind of relationship for the most part? Sometimes it doesn't begin that way. It Fair builds. Uh, you know, and then also you have what we would call functional characters who are, you know, there, you know, the messenger who comes in to deliver the message. Um, you know, the judge who's there to deliver the verdict, so on and so forth, who may not have really had a relationship with the other characters before they, they show up. But you have characters who meet each other in plays. And so, you know, often the play is about the relationship developing. And mm-hmm. so they begin um, maybe not knowing each other. And so they are sort of low context characters. And by the end of the play, they have a high context relationship. But we have seen that context develop as opposed to characters who start out already having that high context relationship. Uh, I'm reminded of there's an Arthur Copet play, which at the time I thought was one of the funniest things I'd ever seen, uh, Road to Nirvana, which, uh, you know, was a, a takeoff. It was originally kind of a, a parody almost of, of Mammoth Speed the Plow. And when it opened it at Louisville, it was called Bone the Fish. And, and because Madonna was in it, they eventually, when they retitled it, they called it Road to Nirvana. And Nirvana is a sort of like coked out rock star. And, and it was, you know, funny as hell. But but when the play begins, like this one guy, and it's about these guys who are, you know, one guy's trying to like get this, this film deal. And he needs this other guy. And as soon as you, like, he comes in, it's like, you know, these people have a relationship. Mm-hmm. And things did not go well the first time out. And, and I won't be a spoiler for anybody who, who you know, probably is less, li- you know, people are less likely to know that than waiting for Godot. Um, but, but it was, you know, it's almost like if I said to you, like, this better not be like San Jose. Now, the, an audience won't know what happened in San Jose, but you can just tell from that, that something happened. We have a history mm-hmm. and something happened in San Jose and it was probably not very good, at least for me. Uh, and, and so the play may then be about shining a little light on that, that history because obviously it's relevant in some way, uh, but we're not going to get that all at once. And that's the fun of it. The good playwriting doesn't just you know throw it all at us, but we get that drip, drip, drip. What is the what is the most important aspect of playwriting in your mind? What what's the one thing you definitely need to have? Whether that's dialogue, character, plot, theme. What's the one key thing that you think is the most important element in playwriting? Well, 
for me, depending on the type of play that I'm writing, because sometimes, for example, with The Throne Room, I was writing a play set in bathrooms, and so I had this concept first, and then I had to sort of develop it from that. But but often, if I'm writing maybe something that is not quite as vignette style, I would say the character is, is the building block for me um, from which most of those other things develop. It is something about one of the characters in the play, uh, you know, and it, it all kind of emanates from there. Having said that, I think as a playwright, understanding this idea of something that I mentioned earlier, that plays are written to be produced and kind of understanding the relationship of your words to like practically how are we going to do this thing, I think is super, super important. And, and too many people neglect that element. And so they are not writing plays that are functional, what do you think is the, what's the worst, oh, what's the worst uh, aspect? It, it's again, that's like the, what's the worst, what's the worst crime in that regard when you say that? How, what's the one thing that comes to mind that, that always shows up when you, when you either get submissions or when you're reading other people's work that you're not thinking about? production? I would say on the young playwright level, it's definitely sort of plays as movies. At 100% sure. And, and so this idea of practically speaking, how are we going to accomplish this thing? Uh, you know, sometimes, for example, it might be that you've created a character and now they have to be completely on the other side of the stage in a different costume in five seconds. And you just didn't think about how somebody was going to pull this off. And so I think that's why it's so important, for example, to have readings and kind of develop plays and, and you know, some playwrights. And this is a, I think this is a really important thing. And, and I managed somehow not to even talk about it is um, don't submit your play to a publisher until your play has been produced. And, and that happens that, in fact, might be the worst sin of all, and it, it happens far too frequently. And, and maybe it happens more in the world of, of young people, especially because everybody thinks, well, the publishers are how you access this market. You know, mostly, I mean, yes, there's a new play network, you know, sort of um, NPX New play exchange, I guess. And, and, you know, but, but I mean, how many teachers really have the time to dig through, you know, 17 or 20,000 plays on NPX? So they are going to publishers for already vetted plays. Mm. And so people are in such a hurry. Uh, you know, somebody, for example, um, had a play that was going to be produced, but he was in such a rush to get it published that he actually sent it to us before the production. And I'm just thinking, are you out of mm. your mind? Plays have to be road tested before, because the problem is that, that once we publish it, like if you then have your first production and you realize that scene three completely doesn't work and, you know, or in the same way that with the throne room, if I had realized, you know, maybe I'd just gone right to publication and then I realized that this scene that's, a, you know, monologue that's a third of the way through needed to open the play and I need to rewrite that, mm. you know, as a publisher, like we've already paid people to do that work. Like we've gotten this play out. We're not going to redo all that because you didn't do your job in the first right. place. So... You know, often it's like, what's your hurry? You know, waiting. And I'm in that situation with the throne room where I'm not 100% sure that I learned enough in the first production 
Uh, you know, or maybe I learned enough that now the script is a little different and I need to see that different version to see if I've gotten it. And, and so now I want to see it again. And then I'll start looking at publishers. What are the steps? What are the steps in playwriting? If, if there was, where, where do you start? And then what's, what's the end goal? If, if there are steps from, sure. from pen to paper and then. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you're going to have some idea and you're going to write your play. And, and when you, um, you know, and for me, for example, um, you know, I write most of my plays longhand to begin with. So I actually have a pad that I carry around and, um, you know, it's messy and you see all kinds of cross outs. And, and then the first step for me is taking it into the computer and I'm actually rewriting actively as it's going from pad into computer. So that's kind of the first step. Uh, but at some point, uh, you know, and I'll keep, I'll, I'll print out as many times I like having things on, you know, paper to rewrite, but, but at some point, you know, for example, the play that I'm, I'm working on now, uh, which is kind of a superhero comedy that I've been carrying around for a while. When I get that done, uh, I'm going to convene a group of actors and, you know, fortunately in LA, like you can't, you know, throw a rock without, you know, skimming off the Ted, you know, the heads of 10 actors. I can't find an actor anywhere in this town. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I will, I will invite people over and I will feed them because I think that's really important. Um, and, and we'll, you know, I just want to hear it out loud and, and I may ask them, I'll ask them some really basic things. Is there anything you didn't understand? Are there any lines that felt weird in your mouth? Stuff like that. I will go back and, and rewrite. And, and, you know, in my case, I might, you know, because it's often for schools, I'm fortunate that I live super close to Hollywood high and I have a great relationship with them. So a couple times, in fact, with the throne room and then with another short play I was working on, I, you know, said to the teacher there, I said, can I, you know, bring a script over and can your kids work on it? You know, just do a reading for me. And he was like, absolutely. Like, we love that experience. Mm. And, and he's really great. Um, and, and so, um, you know, went over there, you know, and, and we'll, you know, we'll have a talk back and, and uh, you know, I'll say what was really working and, and, you know, what do you have questions about? What didn't you understand? And at the end I may, you know, so I'm going to shut up during that whole point. I'm just going to write things down. And at the end I may, you know, have some questions for them. Maybe there's something that I'm not sure about that nobody brought up. And, and a lot of times because nobody brought it up, that may be okay, um, you know, when I was directing more, you know, the, the kids would know that if I didn't give you a note on it, I thought it was fine. Um, but, but whatever it is, you know, I'll go back and I'll take those notes and I will see what resonates with me and I will make those changes that I need to. At that point, uh, I'm looking for first production. You know, if I, if I've done, you know, and, and maybe, you know, for adults, you might be looking for a workshop, you know, some sort of developmental opportunity for schools. You're probably looking for a production that is kind of your workshop. And, um, you know, you may dangle the idea that, you know, you will get your group's name in the final published version um, and so on and so forth. So you'll have that production. Hopefully you will learn what you need to. Um, but if you maybe learn so much that you, you know, the script that you rewrite, because you're going to do rewrites after that. And, and, I was going, so with, with Hoover High and the throne room, I was going to rehearsal periodically and I was making changes constantly through the process. And I think that's why it's important to go to rehearsal, but not go to rehearsal all the time. Uh, first of all, because, you know, the actors and the directors need some time to work without the playwright breathing down their necks. Sure. And, and also as a playwright, you want to be able to come back and feel that the show is fresh 
And, and so if you see it every day, you cease to be able to notice things about it. So at that point, you have your production, you do your rewrites as you need to. If you need to seek another production, um, that is probably easier at the school level. Um, you know, a lot of times at the adult level, one of the challenges is that everybody wants to do the first production and mm -hmm. it's really difficult to find that second production. So hopefully that can happen. But when you feel like the play is as finished as you can get it, and, and sometimes we never really know whether we're right, but we have taken, you know, it's almost like football. You have carried the ball as far as you can. Now it's probably time to look for a publisher. Certainly in the school market, a publisher is important because that gives you access to that whole educational market because each of these publishers has customers who view them as a vetted source of material. In the professional world, you need to make sure that first production is a production that's going to get you reviews, uh, or maybe you have a tryout production and you need to get it to New York. But but somehow, you know, a lot of these publishers want some kind of serious newspaper that says this play is great because they need to convince, um, you know, their audience that this play is great. So one of those two routes, but at that point, the hope is that the play gets published. So if we'll say my play, I write a play and let's say that, that my company picks it up. Now, a lot of playwrights may think my job is done. You know, the play is published. That's it. I'm on to the next play. But the reality is these days, first of all, publishers are more concerned. It's not that we're not going to market your play. We are. We're going to send out e-blasts about it. We're going to bring it to conferences um, we are going to have social media posts about it, all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, we have a catalog. And if customer A picks play one or play two, doesn't matter. We're still making money, right? So it's important as a playwright to have a website, have social media. You continue to promote your work so that that play sort of bobs to the surface because our catalog at Youth Plays is, is good size, but small, you know, we're 500 some odd titles, which is, I think, respectable. We are a, a boutique publisher. Sure. On the other hand, Concord, you're looking at thousands of titles. And so how does your play stand out in that mix? Right. And so your job as a playwright in the same way that just because your children leave the house doesn't mean that you block their number and, and don't speak to them ever again. You, you know, continue to send them cookies and <laughs> maybe money, whatever it is. Going back to the, the stage reading, just out of curiosity, do you participate in that or just sit back, listen and take notes? I generally want to sit and watch. In fact, a, a piece of advice that I will give playwrights in general, especially when it comes to your production. Uh, or your stage reading, or anything with an audience, I like to sit in the back, right? Don't be the sort of proud puppy sitting all the way up front. Oh, it's so great, my play. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the whole reason of going to that is, is to improve the play. Now, it's different if it's a play that I'm done working on, but sure. if it's a play... So, so for example, it, it, with Rumors of Polar Bears, I think Claremont got me great fifth-row seats, and I was perfectly happy and grateful to have them, and, and I sat in the midst of the audience. But when you're working on the play, I like to sit in the very back. In fact, I like nobody to be behind me 
if I can. Uh, and so what I'm doing is I'm actually watching two things at once. I'm watching the play, but I'm also watching the audience watch the play. And a lot of cues will happen from watching the audience. So you see, for example, when do people shift around in their seats? When are people reading their programs? You know, when are they leaning forward? Because like, this is amazing. You know, when are they laughing? All those things, that's all information for me. And, and so if I sit at the back, I can observe it all. And that will be useful when I'm rewriting. And again, I would repeat the piece of information that I, I mentioned when it came to the talk back. Do not assume the problem is where it appears to be. So, you know, if 30 minutes in, everybody starts reading their program, sure, look at what's happening 30 minutes in, but see if there's something that happens in that moment that was not properly set up. And so the problem is that you didn't do the job 20 minutes in, not 30 minutes in. 30 minutes will play if you fix 20. Going into publishing... Again, <laughs> and I'm hoping that you can sh shine a light on this because this is a beef, as people from past episodes will know. <laughs> what format do you expect your plays to be submitted in? So, loaded question. Our preference, certainly we ask for initially submissions, we want them to be as PDF files. Sure, okay. Uh, just on, on a, what kind of script should it be. In terms of the actual format, I personally prefer Drama to Skilled Modern. Okay. How do you print it? When we print it, we change it. Why? So the reason is because Drama to Skilled Modern, um, you know, has tons of white space. So as a reader reading a play... This is a kinder, gentler reading experience. So if our reader has not had their morning coffee, you know, or they have broken up with their significant other, they're otherwise having a terrible day, right? White space is their friend, right? It will not make their day any worse. On the other hand, when you are publishing something, having everything, uh, you know, the speaker's name be on the left and, and having that, you know, that's a much more dense format. Right. So that's about saving us money. If we had to publish, you know, so for example, with our uh, fulfillment company, that's costing us every page, you know, so it costs me a lot more to print a hundred page play than it does to print a, you know, 80 page play. Sure. So, so that is the simple rationale behind that. I'll take it. I'll take it. Cause it's always driven me nuts because I think it, I'm like, this is so misleading. This isn't, you know, cause you, if you have the people that are beginning playwrights, and they're, you know, buying the Sam French, they're buying the dramatist, and then they're reading it. And then I'm like, oh, this is how you do it. And I send it in and like, no, this is not how, I'm like, but this, this is how you print it. And it's always driven me nuts. And I've never understood why the difference. So that, that is the, the difference. I mean, if somebody submits a play to us and it's set up, you know, in the sort of published play format, whatever. I mean, it, you know, the question at the end of the day is, is it a good play? 100%. Yeah, and we'll, we will, whatever the format is, for example, we have one play that is an absolutely beautiful play, and the playwright had a, you know, kind of wanted, sort of not our traditional format, but, but almost wanted it laid out like a poem. Mm. And 
uh, and, and like no punctuation and lowercase. And, and you know what? I was like, this is a freaking great play. You put it however you want it. We will do that. And I, I instructed our you know editorial people. I said, whatever he tells you he wants, I want you to give him what he wants. That's awesome. That's awesome. Tell me about real quick. Let's get, uh, playwriting101.com. So years ago, I was in some, um, you know, like a list serve with this guy who was more of a screenwriting guy, but he had been connected to the writer's store, um, which, which, you know, existed until not that long ago, but it's sort of, it's, it's, it's memory, you know, lives on. And so, um, he connected me to the folks at the writer's store. And at that time they were looking to do kind of a playwriting sort of instructional slash help site. And I was, you know, I was just in the right place at the right time in the same way that those folks helped connect me to Final Draft. And when Final Draft created the Ask the Expert that was in, um, you know, I think like version seven and, and maybe eight, and then it disappeared. But, you know, Sid Field did the screenwriting one and I did the playwriting one. And I was oh. like, wow. And again, it was it was sort of dumb luck that, that you know, which is, is it was interesting. It was something that we were, uh, some friends and I were, were talking about. This is a whole idea of, um, I actually remember how it came up because it is, not to be droppy, but but so it is my 30-year Harvard reunion coming up soon. Congratulations. And, uh, you know, and so one of the questions, they do this class survey. Um, and, and I remember in the, the 25-year one of them was like, how many houses do you have? And, and there was one person who had five houses. But what was scary is there were like eight people who had four houses. And I'm thinking, I don't even have one. Um, but, but it was, you know, there was a question about like, do you experience imposter syndrome? And, and so, you know, this idea that, um, you know, you don't deserve what you got and, and that you're not worthy of these people asking you. And, and, and so um, Playwriting 101, I mean, I didn't really think about it at the time, but it was one of those things that, that I mean, I was, I was just out of, probably wrote that when I was somewhere out of undergrad. I don't even know if I had, I'm trying to remember how long it's been in existence and whether it predates my UCLA time or not, but I, I certainly wasn't like a big name. I mean, I still don't ever feel like a big name, um, even though I've, I've had, you know, some plays get done. But, um, you know, so they they hired me to, um, you know, to write the content for the site. And we had, you know, things like formatting and, and terms and just kind of a basic framework to, you know, it wasn't necessarily like a how to write a play exactly, but it, it did it did give people some guardrails um, in terms of playwriting and format and, and, you know, how your play should look professional. And it actually ended up leading to some great things for me because um, when it came to uh, being asked to be United States Cultural Envoy to Barbados, which was this crazy email that, that came out of the blue, I literally thought it was this scam email uh, when I got the, the original email, because like, who are, you know, I thought they were going to say, um, you know, if you give us $10,000 and all your banking information, <laughs> we have $100 million for you. And it, it turned out to actually be a real thing. Uh, and I ended up in Barbados for a month back in 2008, which was super cool because it was a really interesting time to be in Barbados. And I was charged with helping lift the level of writing in the island. I was a judge in their uh, National Arts Festival 
on the writing side and I did a lecture at the University of the West Indies and I taught uh, classes several times a week. And, and I was there when Obama won the presidency for the first time. And so here you are in this majority black country seeing America's first black president, which was, uh, and, and as I was working, technically I was a State Department person for a month. I actually had State Department health insurance. It was super cool. <laughs> and, and there was a big social event at the U.S. ambassador's residence on election day. And, and she was a, a Bush appointee, but she was you know lovely and very gracious and actually a big supporter of the arts. And I went over there and I'm watching in real time as Obama wins a presidency surrounded um, by a lot of people who were, you know, residents of Barbados, sort of dignitaries from Barbados and foreign diplomatic missions. And it was a super cool thing. And I would not have gotten that without Playwriting 101 in the same way I was invited to Singapore because they found me through Playwriting 101. And I did... Uh, not just the the Asian Festival of Children's Content, which was super, super fun, but I also went on a different year and I taught this writer's group. What I loved about Singapore is it's all about food. And I personally, in my sort of other life, I'm all about food. And so you would have breakfast and I would teach for an hour and a half. And then there would be, you know, there were sort of like hobbits in that um, everything was structured around meals and the food was fantastic. And, and so those good things all came out of, you know, just having been at the right place at, at the right time. And I would assume they thought I did a reasonably competent job at it. Is Playwriting101.com still active? Um, it is still extant. I do not, at this point, haven't updated it in a while. And, and there was a, a stretch, you know, so the writer's store was was bought or they, they sold it. Um, you know, Jesse and his dad, like at some point, they, they were moving on. And, um, you know, because the writer's store, of course, was an actual physical location. Um, I think it was sort of in Burbank at one point, and then it was on Westwood Boulevard. But at some point, they got an offer they couldn't refuse, and they, um, you know, they sold it. And But the classes that existed through the writer's store sort of lived on. And while I am not actively teaching anymore, there is a class that I wrote that people can still take, basically a beginner playwriting class. And somebody else teaches it, uh, but it's my curriculum, and and so, um, but 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 sort of it's corporate at this point, and so I don't believe that the site has been updated in a while, and and I think there's some question about whether it will, you know, how long it will live on. I mean, part of me wanted to do an update at one point, but but you know, I'm not going to necessarily do that if somebody's not paying me to do it because I don't run the site. But that whole entire curriculum and. And any updates can still be found at jonathandorf.com? So I have um, on my website, you know, under the workshops area, so I have a whole host of curriculum options, um, you know, that, that people can come to me for and they can have me, you know, into their school or to talk to their theater group. And so I would say that the original playwriting101.com, even though it still exists, I have since then created a lot more playwriting content, um, whether they are lectures that already exist that I can give you access to. So for example, festivals will license my content for uh, a weekend or, or something and, and have that information available online, or they can bring me in in person and I'm happy. I love traveling, so I'm happy to travel literally all over the world and I've done it. <laughs> so if just an individual wants to 
go through and do your workshops or anything that's, that might be on your website? That's still, that's still an option. It doesn't have to be a group thing. doesn't have to be a group thing. Now, they could, for example, take the course, um, which is available through, I don't know if it's still called Screenwriters University, or it's kind of gone through some different iterations, but there will be probably a link to that on my website. Um, the other thing that, that, for example, I was doing this with uh, a student on the East Coast, um, I will tutor people in playwriting. So she wanted to develop a play. And so we basically set up a group of lessons and we did it on Zoom. And I can work with anyone just in the same way that I do consulting for, I've, I've consulted for everyone from, you know, Blue Man Group to playwrights individually to screenwriters to sort of the whole whole mass of, of people. And so people can reach me through the site and and basically say this is what I want to do and I will help them figure out what is the best solution whether it is you simply need to um, you know license this particular class and and you know here's the rate and and you get access to it for whatever or um, we'll set up a whole curriculum for you or your program and, and go from there I might be having to take advantage of this um, on that note as well, where can people find your work? So the best starting point is probably at jonathandorf.com. All of my different plays will be listed there. But then I am published with a number of companies. The nice thing about going to jonathandorf.com is it will tell you in the case of each play who publishes and licenses it. So, for example, it may say this play is available on the Youth Plays site or this play is available from Brooklyn Publishers, um, you know, or Play Scripts, which I should probably, in theory, update to Broadway Licensing, even though it is the Play Scripts division of Broadway Licensing. Um, but, you know, so, but I would say start with, start with my website. Has Youth Plays ever rejected any of your work? I think mean, youth plays would be incapable of rejecting my work <laughs> because I run the company. But, um, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, we, we, unfortunately we do reject a lot of, of things that, um, you know, may sometimes are, can be a really good play and it's just not right for us. And, and I've certainly had work rejected at other publishers. I think not in a while because I'm strategic now we have a conversation first. They know it's coming in. They're looking forward to it, so on and so forth. But but sometimes it might be that what I deliver, maybe for example, is too edgy, and which is, is probably unusual. But but you never know, or is a little different. Um, in fact, in the case of Locker Next to Mine, it was not a publishing problem, but it was commissioned by a school on Long Island, and basically the commission was about 90 minutes, has to include 29 people, make it a drama. Mm. And so I said, okay, I'm going to write a play about teen suicide because I think that's important. Unfortunately, some of the events that happened in that play hit too close to home for them because they had just lost some people. There had been a student who had died in an accident and, and some other things. And so they said, we would like this play, but we can't do it right now. And so they actually transferred sort of the premiere rights um, they still paid for the commission but but a school in Alabama did the first production because for them it was a play that they could do any parting advice before we uh, 
before we leave? <laughs> it's like, go out and no. Um, you know, I think just keep writing. I think it's really easy for us to, um, you know, find obstacles that get in the way of, of writing. And, and maybe um, the, the piece of advice I should leave people with when it comes to continuing to write is a piece of advice that is actually courtesy of Stephen Schwartz. Uh, because often, you know, whether young writers or, or older writers, you know, we have, we'll say, writer's block or what we, you know, something analogous to writer's block. And, and so Stephen used to talk about writer's block as the editor entering the room too early. Mm. And so I would tell people, lock the door and make sure your inner editor is on the other side of it and then get to what you need to do. And don't worry if it's good or bad. The idea is that, that a, the play has to exist first before you can worry about if it's good or bad. So just focus on making it exist. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the Playwright Spotlight. Thank you, James. It's been great. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Playwright Spotlight. Again, smash that like button, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment down below, and share this channel with a friend. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, be sure to leave a five-star review and subscribe to the channel. And in the meantime, until we see each other again... Keep writing.